Amen. As you uh, find your seat, let me encourage you to find your copy of God's Word, whether you have a printed copy, as I encourage you to bring to church or a uh, app on your device. I want you to find the book of 1 Corinthians, and I'm, I'm just going to continue that treatment of the resurrection that you and this worship team behind me so beautifully and passionately sang together. This morning, I have the honor of preaching to you from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in the final installment of a sermon series we've been doing since Palm Sunday through this 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians called Not in Vain. I'm very excited for next week. I'm going to do a standalone message on Mother's Day, a two-part message, one on Mother's Day and then one later on Father's Day. Next week, I'm going to take a biblical view to answer the question, what is a woman? And on Father's Day, I'm going to answer the question, what is a man? Not my opinion, not the left's opinion or the right's opinion, but the Lord's opinion. And we're going to give it to you from the Word because actually the Lord's Word is not an opinion. It's true. And so we're going to walk through that together next week and then on Father's Day. And in a few weeks, I'm going to go backwards in 1 Corinthians and jump back into 1 Corinthians chapter 14, a chapter I intentionally skipped to deal with the resurrection around Easter. But we're going to back into that and we're going to study and understand the biblical gift of tongues, what it is, what it is not, and how it should be used and seen and viewed in our lives. If you've ever entered into a discussion or a debate or a disagreement with someone over the gift of tongues, come back in the next few weeks and we were going to sort that out together and I will leave you passionate and utterly confused. But if you have I'm just kidding. But if you have your copy open this morning to 1 Corinthians 15, I want you to think with me for the next few moments on how quickly life can change. Life can change in a moment. A moment can change your life. A death can change your life. Death often comes in a moment. And someone else's life can change your life. A moment can change everything. A death can change everything. A life can change everything. You live hundreds, thousands, if we're being mathematically correct, millions of moments. But every one of you, no matter the season of life you may find yourself in, can look backwards and say there are a few defining moments that changed everything. There are other Of you who may look back and say, there are a few people who I have lost in my life. And dealing with their departure, their death, impacted me. It did not leave me unchanged. And then there are people. There are other people's lives. And you look in your life and you say, I've come across hundreds, thousands of people. But this woman's life, this man's life, left an indelible mark on me. I'm so grateful that they lived and that they existed in my life. Certainly, I hope if you have the privilege of being in a healthy family, there are no perfect families at Church at the Mill. Your pastor certainly doesn't have one. But if you are in a healthy family, a loving family, a family where the gospel rules and reigns, it's easy for you to answer those questions. You can go back to that 
moment you came to Christ, that moment of your baptism, that moment you laid down a sin struggle and turned in repentance, that moment you accomplished something for the Lord. You can look back on someone that passed away, but the hope of Christ got you through that. And even though that death was difficult, it was a defining moment in your life. And of course, I hope you can look at the lives of others, perhaps a husband, a wife, a mother, a father, a Sunday school teacher, a coach, a mentor, a friend, a neighbor, a professor, somebody in your life, and you look at them and you say, his life or her life changed me. This is why we've called the series Not in Vain. The English definition of the word vain, as I have shared with you over the last six weeks, has several ways of understanding. The one is to be filled with vanity. One full of oneself is considered vain. But the second two definitions are the reasons Paul uses this word, marked by futility or having no real value. And the reason Paul uses this word multiple times in this chapter is because the Corinthians were beginning to question the validity of a future resurrection. They went so far as to say that Christ was resurrected, but there's no need to preach of a future resurrection for us. For them, the afterlife needed to be a separation of flesh and blood from the soul. Because in the Greco-Roman world, they often associated everything that's wrong with us as being in our body and everything that's right with us as being in our soul or our spirit. And so you could see how the worldview of their day began to affect their theology and they said, why would I ever want to be reunited with this body? That's based on a great misunderstanding that the curse of sin and the sorrow of this flesh is going to be experienced in the new heaven and the new earth. That's actually not true. And so Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians, specifically in chapter 15, says, wait a minute. If there's no future resurrection, then everything you're doing is empty. It's ineffective. It's futile. It lacks no real meaning. If there's not a real tangible afterlife with a real heaven and a real earth in real bodies, in real relationships, like they were created a real man and a real woman in a real garden before sin entered. If that's not in our future, then the gospel is lost. To chip away at the future of our resurrection is to diminish the power of Christ's Resurrection. That's why I've been sharing this quote with you throughout this series by C.F. Pfeiffer. If Christ was not crucified and resurrection, resurrected, then salvation is impossible. So how do you end, bring to a conclusion, such a rich, power-packed chapter on the resurrection? Well, you do what any good teacher does. You follow Paul's lead, and Paul says, I just want to tell you again. I want to summarize. You ever had this conversation? Mom, I got an essay due. Okay, hon, when is it due? Tomorrow. Okay, baby, well, have you started? 
I've been thinking about it. That's great, honey, but the teacher can't grade your thoughts, and we're glad she can't see most of them. So you sat down with this budding literary masterpiece of a writer you're trying to raise, and you say to them what you remembered. Some of you excelled in literature, others of you did not. You think in sticky notes and spreadsheets. You say, well, sweetheart, what do you want to write about? Well, she told us to write about something we think we might want to do this summer, okay? Well, what do you want to do this summer? I just want to sleep and eat Fruit Loops and watch cartoons. <laughs> well, you're on your way to a great essay. But then the Lord in his grace conjures up your own intellect and you say, I seem to remember that you must have a good introductory paragraph. Three to five solid paragraphs in a body to support your thesis. And then a concluding paragraph. Is there any literature teachers in the room? Did I get that right? Can I get an amen to that? Is anybody with me there? I've learned to write a little bit. This is Paul's concluding paragraph. This is where he brings it all to a close and he says, I want to talk about a moment. I want to talk about a death and I want to talk about a life. In fact, I want to tell you about them. Let me show you what I mean. And as I read this, you will remember this passage from a funeral you have attended at some point. The Bible says in verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal parts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he ends in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Not in vain. Paul tells us first, in light of everything in our future, there is a moment worth remembering. There are two directions your mind is to remember. We often associate remembering with the past. That's linguistically accurate, and it's true. I remember moments in the past. We, as a modern people, have the gift of technology. We can scroll through posts on social media or pictures in our phone and remember 
moments. Often we capture moments by taking a picture. There is a intoxication in our culture with people trying to create and capture a moment. If you're not careful, you'll miss the moment for trying to capture the moment. Just have the moment and then take a picture of it. But we don't just remember moments in our past if we love the Lord and believe his word. We have to remember moments in our future. You've done this before if you've ever motivated yourself. Perhaps you entered a degree program that challenged you. I remember when I started my final degree program, I asked them, how long does it take to earn a doctorate? They said, you have seven years. I thought, seven years? Seven years? I went from first through the fifth grade in seven years. I said, how long can you do it if you do it as soon as you can do it? They said, three years. I took my calendar out, and I went three years, and I picked the graduation date, and I made an X. And when I would get discouraged... I'd go look at that date, and I'd just keep plowing. If you've ever thought about a goal that you've had, maybe you are thinking about your bathing suit body right now, you know, the one that doesn't exist, and you'll remember, you know what? I told myself by this date I was going to weigh this much, and I'm going to get there, and if I don't get there, I'm going to spray it tan anyway. We often tell young people, listen, I know things are hard, but remember, this too shall pass. For Christians, we need to remember a moment when everything will change. Now, Paul has rightly answered the question, what happens to the dead? That seems to be a concern in Corinth, what happens to the dead? And so he explains the resurrection of the dead. But then that leads to a second question. What if there are people alive when the Lord returns? And we know there will be. I don't know if it will be me. I don't know if it will be you. I don't know if it will be this generation. I don't know. But if people are alive when he returns, we know of the dead there will be a resurrection. But what of those who do not need a resurrection because by default they have not yet died physically? Look what he says, beginning in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that word inherit permeates Scripture in the book of Luke, chapter 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying to Jesus, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Why does that word come up over and over and over again about eternal life? I'll tell you why. Because you cannot earn an inheritance. An inheritance is given to you because of who you are, not what you have done. Now, human inheritances can be tied to contingencies. There are people who have amazing amounts of wealth, and they put their wealth in trusts, and they say things like, this person will inherit this much upon their 18th birthday. This person will inherit this much upon the completion of a bachelor's degree. And so those can posthumously put contingencies on their inheritance. But no one ever says, I earned my inheritance. Because you did not choose the family member through which and by which it came. This is true of salvation. Nobody's in heaven today because they earned their way there, the standard for heaven is 100% 
perfect sinlessness and obedience. So of all the humans ever born, there is only one man born of woman who was worthy to go to heaven and did not need salvation. And of course, that is the Lord Jesus, which is why he's also the one man born of woman worthy to pay for the sins of the world. That's why he's called the Lamb of God. So we know inheriting eternal life is something the biblical audience is preoccupied with. They want to know how to get there. Well, Paul says in verse 50, these words, I'll tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I can't go there like this. Flesh and blood, there is not a reference to there won't be flesh and blood in heaven. We already know we'll have real bodies in heaven. This is a reference when used in this context to my earthly sinful state of being. He says that won't inherit. And then he says, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. That, you know, is a reference to the above paragraph where he talks about that which is sown perishable. Verse 42, so it is written with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. So if I have not been sown, I've not been buried, I've not died, and I know I cannot go to heaven in the state that I'm in, what shall be my future if I am alive upon the Lord's return? Well, look what the Bible says. I'm so thankful God does not leave us cloudy. There's so much clarity here. Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That's a respectful reference to death. Not everybody will be dead when the Lord returns. But we shall be changed. So the same change that happens in the resurrection to the dead will happen miraculously to the living who are in Christ. Now, is it going to take a long time? Is it a transition? Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 52. In a moment, I love that word in the original language, moment. It's translated atomos, atomos. It's where we get our English word, the atom. The atom is called the atom because of this word. And why did they choose this word? Because for many, 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 many years, it was thought that was the smallest, most indivisible thing. When we think about the universe in its material state in the form of atoms, it is the smallest, most individual things. And so that moment, just a split second. And then he uses a good old analogy we all can relate to if we have eyes. The twinkling of an eye. Now, you know sometimes when you talk about falling in love with somebody, you, you say, well, there was just a twinkle in her eye. Or, 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 or you see somebody you meet, and they just have some charisma about them, and you may say, man, he just had a twinkle in his eye. We know that the way we carry ourselves, I can read a lot of you by your eyes. You can read me by my eyes. If you walk in and you barely got here and you're late and you've got a sinus infection, it's been a tough week, your eyes will tell me that story. If you had a good night's rest and you're relatively healthy and there's joy in your life, your eyes will tell you this story. Jesus said the eyes are the window to the soul. We get that. But this word twinkling actually means the amount of time it takes for an eyelid to blink. You do that game with your little one. You set them on the counter in front of you and go, all right, first one to blink loses. I got one. She'll stare a hole through you. It scares me how much she can just stare. I mean, almost like there's something going on in her. Like, I mean, she can just, 
like lock in. I'm pretty focused. Man, I'll get to that. And then you start. And then the moment you start trying not to blink, you know what's going to happen? You're going to blink. And so in order not to lose, I just clap right in front of her face. And then I say, you're out. And she said, you cheated. And I said, I'm the dad. I make the rules. You're out. But that split second, that is what will happen and how it will happen and when it will happen is upon the Lord's return. Look what the Bible says, beginning in verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, and then we see the word trumpet again, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. So he goes back to those who are in the ground. And then he says, and we, referring in the present to those who are not yet dead, and we shall all be changed. Not an elite group of Christians, not some Christians, not ordained Christians, not Baptist Christians, not Methodist Christians. Every person in Christ shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Now, it begs the question, when will this happen? Run from any pastor that tells you they know. The Bible says this in the book of Matthew in the Scripture. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. No one knows. No one knows. Every generation talks about the signs of the end of time. We do know that our civilization is deteriorating morally. We wonder, how much longer can it be? We even echo the words of John at the end of the Bible when he writes the great revelation of Christ and those visions of this magnificent struggle of good and evil culminating a great battle, a battle of Armageddon and God victoriously casting Satan and all those who rejected Christ into hell and welcoming all those in Christ into a new heaven and a new earth. And at the very end of the Bible, Jesus says, I am coming. And then John writes, come, Lord Jesus. Yes, come. And so there is to be that anticipation for that day, but we don't know when it will happen. But that does not mean it won't happen. And it does not mean that the belief that it will happen should not encourage us today. We might not gather again in this service come the Lord's day one week. We might not know another day, another week, another month, another year. We don't know. But the fascinating thing about this is how the change prepares us for an unbelievable future. So, so that whole trumpet scenario, it made me think about what Paul wrote the church in Thessalonica. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command and the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then he goes on to say in the scriptures about this idea that we... For while we are still in this tent, he uses the analogy of our body as a tent. Why does that speak to us more than a house? Because tents are temporary. We groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed in 2 Corinthians, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. 
So remember I told you it's not a new unrecognizable body, a new kind of matter. It will still have flesh and blood. It will still have bone and tissue. You will still have your face, your personality. Who you are was not created, though marred by sin, was not created as a result of sin. You were made in the image of God. And so this change will prepare you in a moment for a new heaven and a new earth that you will experience and the body you have will never know the curse of sin, the pull of temptation, the longing of the flesh again. So that's a moment worth remembering. But then Paul says, I tell you this, there's a death worth celebrating. Now that seems ironic to say it that way, but think about it. When it comes to the good, we celebrate their life and mourn their death. But when it comes to the evil, we mourn their life and celebrate their death. This last Tuesday was the 12th anniversary of the day when SEAL Team 6 made a visit to Osama bin Laden's house. I like for people to come see me. I'm a social person. But if SEAL Team 6 shows up, you're going to have a bad day. And I remember when President then, President Obama, interrupted all the network program. No one knew what the interruption was about. But when the president demands time in front of a TV, in front of a TV camera and all the major networks and all the news outlets, and it's unannounced and unplanned, everybody submits because they know something important has developed. And so an announcement was made, President Barack Obama will address the nation. This is May 2011. And when he does, he comes on and he tells that Osama bin Laden had been killed. And I remember seeing the images of Washington, D.C., the capital filled with people celebrating the death of this man who had done so much evil. Now, I'm not in any way making a statement about the morality of raveling in or reveling in someone else's death, but here is the point. There are some deaths that humans celebrate. Paul does that here. He doesn't celebrate the death of a person. He celebrates the death of death. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, that's that change, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Whenever Paul says that is written, it's almost always a reference to the Old Testament. Paul knew his Bible very well. And he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as an apostle, takes a portion of Isaiah 25 and a portion of Hosea, and he writes what is so often celebrated at funerals. Death is swallowed up in victory. Notice the irony of the language. If you're a word person, one of the analogies or the metaphors of the graves that the earth swallows you in death. You are taken down into the grave, never to be seen in this life again. And that haunts us so much so that some people don't want to be buried in the ground. Paul takes that human fear and he turns it and he says, death ultimately will get swallowed, not in a non-existent state, but in victory. Victory over the death. How do you have victory over a hole you go in? Bless God, you come out of it. 
And he says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? I'm just going to tell you now, Paul's trash talking. That's what he's doing, right? Any of you got a kid that's a gifted trash talker? You ever known somebody that's a trash talker? You know, somebody that you had to tone down a little bit. You know, they want to trash talk about situations that really aren't worth trash talking about. Hadn't really accomplished anything. Every coach in the room says this multiple times to some young motivated athlete, young woman or young man. Listen, let, let your play do the talking. Save all that for after the game. But we know that there are some athletes who talk and trash talk and build their brand. Well, if there's ever been someone who's worthy of having some trash talk come their way, it's death. And Paul gives it to death. He says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? What is the sting of death? The sting of death is not death itself. The sting of death is the penalty of having to miss out on life. In, in, in other words, the sting of death is that it's permanent. When we lose a loved one, we lose them permanently. That's why death stings different than travel. That's why death stings different than deployment. That's why death stings different than having a best friend or a loved one move to take a job. Yes, we mourn. Yes, it's tough. But we can call. We can email. We can write. We can text. We can jump on a plane and go see them. But death has a sting of permanence to it. And now Paul says death's had the stinger ripped off. It, does no, it had no longer has the victory in our lives. Now, Paul, being the consummate teacher, says of this death that's worthy of celebrating, here's where the sting comes in. Look at verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. What is the relationship between death, sin, and the law? How does law, God's law, which is good, it's given, sin and death relate to one another? This is important. Even if you've never thought about this, you ought to. Let me give it to you in two statements. The first statement, I'll say it this way. Because of the law... Sin is known. You don't know the speed limit if there are no speed limit signs. When you approach in your vehicle an intersection, if you don't see a stoplight or a stop sign or a yield sign, any experienced driver will slow down because you don't know what to do. And you know the intersection means there is a high likelihood there will be other vehicles not traveling along beside you, but rather intersecting in a perpendicular manner your course of travel. And that can be bad. So any good driver knows if you don't know what to do, study the intersection. This is why we're so dependent on the signs. The law of God is what made known to man not only his holiness and high expectation, but what God determines to be sin. This is the difference between the human world and the 
animal world. I read an article this week in the BBC because I'm a nerd. I read an article this week in the BBC about what they're doing in China to help the panda bear population. Now, pandas are great, you know. I mean, they're all beautiful and cuddly. They only eat one thing, bamboo. It's all they eat. So maybe that's why we like panda bears. They don't eat us, you know. We won't see a lot of kids walking around with a stuffed grizzly bear, but pandas are cute. But pandas are endangered. There's a couple thousand of them, they believe, in the wild. Almost all the time, panda bears have twins. They have two cubs. And in nature, because of their diet, because of resources, overwhelmingly, something like 90% of the time, the panda mother takes one and raises it and abandons one to die. And, of course, a cub, just like a puppy or a kitten or any animal, as soon as they're born, as soon as they leave the protection of the womb of their mother, if they don't get immediate care and immediate nourishment, if they're not immediately led to nurse, they only have a few hours, maybe days to live. This is natural selection. So what they did in this article, I'll put an image of it on the screen, what they did is they tricked this panda bear because they need all the pandas to live. So they tricked this panda bear, and so every Every 10 minutes, they switch the panda cubs out. She doesn't know she's had twins. She's just taking care of one cub at a time so that she will allow the cubs to nurse. Some of you are like, maybe that's my problem. Maybe I got more kids than I know about. <laughs> Somebody's switching them out. Y'all can relate to that. Somebody's switching them out. But, but, but I thought, if a mother, a human woman, We'll define that next week. But if a mother, if a mother had twins and abandoned one, not only is that a crime, we would say that's morally wrong. But why? Because of the law. Because God has said in his word, every human being is made in the image of God and has intrinsic value. God has multiple places in his word where he talks about the obligation to love the vulnerable and to care for children. The obligation of a mother to nurture and nurse her offspring and a father to protect and provide for his offspring. But why do we know all that? Well, it didn't just evolve because we didn't evolve. We're made in the image of God, and it's given to us in the law. So the law makes known the knowledge of sin. But here's the second statement I'll give to you, and it's pretty simple. Because sin is known, death is known. The wages, the Bible says, that's what you earn. The wages of sin is, help me church, death. So here's the relationship. The law makes known to us what is in violation to God's morality, God's standard, God's holiness. And when we are in violation of God's standard, his holiness, his perfect righteousness, we thus sin, and the penalty of sin is death. Paul really had to deal with this with a bunch of legalistic people in the book of Galatians. This is what he says in Galatians. Now, before faith came, and he's talking about the Lord Jesus appearing, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So all the people in the Old Testament under the obligation of law knew there was a groaning that a Messiah was coming. There was never the belief 
that anybody in the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, Jeremiah, David, Elisha, you pick them, that any of those people by keeping the law would earn sinless righteousness before God. The law prepared, held sin at bay, and prepared the world to need, want, and desire a Messiah. This is why Paul says, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So the knowledge of sin is enough to condemn you, but not enough to save you. The knowledge of Christ removes the condemnation and saves you because it disarms death of its stinger. It's a pretty famous guy named John Calvin said it this way. Death has no other weapon except sin with which to wound us since death comes from the wrath of God. Death is the wrath of God poured over sin. But listen, this will encourage you. But God is angry only with our sins. God's not against you. He's against your sin. But God is angry only with our sins. Do away with sin then, and death will not be able to harm us anymore. It is the law of God that gives that sting its deadly power. So this is what Paul is saying in his great trash talking of death. Death, you've lost your stinger because I no longer have the sin that once marred me down. So the power to swallow me up has been swallowed up in victory. And that is a death worth celebrating. And it's also perfect foundation to help us to remember one last thing, and I'm done. There is a life worth living. Have you noticed how our society is groping for meaning? Like no other society I know of in history, there is this constant angst to find the meaning of life. This is where all our modern debates really lie. You can read all the headlines you want. Underneath them is theology. The the idea that you're going to find meaning by mutilating your body and changing your gender, which you cannot do. The idea that you're going to find meaning by celebrating the death of the unborn by the hundreds of thousands. The idea that you're going to find meaning by stepping on those around you to climb some capitalistic ladder to achieve some wealth that's supposed to bring you some type of happiness. All these things continue to leave people empty. And this is why I love verse 58. It is such an appropriate closing to this chapter. Read it with me. I'll read it aloud. You read along silently. Therefore, after all the things I've said over the first 40, or excuse me, 57 verses, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Don't be wishy-washy, immovable, and always abound in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul says, don't be jerked around by any modern-day worldview. Don't move off the gospel. Be steadfast. Now, the good news is, is that the same Bible that says my faith should be immovable also says my faith should move and grow with life as I move and grow 
with life. I think about how Paul told the Colossian believers this. He says, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, so that's not moving, and built up. I think about a tree. I spent a lot of time outside. A lot of time outside. I came across this tree last year in Wyoming. My wingspan's about six foot. That's disappointing to a guy who only made 5'9". I have long arms. Somewhere in my family history is an orangutan. But I walked up to this tree while looking for a turkey, and I couldn't help but see the size of this old cottonwood on a ranch in Wyoming. And I had my buddy take a picture. And the interesting thing about that is I remember the leaves were beginning to bud. It's early spring there. The branches were moving in the wind. If you had the opportunity to put a camera on that tree for the last 100 years, you would have seen thousands of changes but the stumps never moved. If you cut a tree down at the stump, everything else dies. If the stump remains healthy and strong with the roots deep in the ground, then the tree can move with the winds of life. The tree can continue to bud and create leaf, leaves and new life and new limbs. That's what I want our faith to look like. That's what Paul says. Dig deep in the fact that a resurrection's coming. You will experience it because Christ experienced it. Your death no longer has a sting. The victory's in Christ. That's what he says in verse 57. He says, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. One commentator said it pretty good about this. He said, ultimately, Paul's saying... How about less theological speculation and more work? Be about the business of God. And it reminds me of what he said through God's anointed servant who wrote the book of Hebrews. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So what's the end of this summary? It's this, because of the resurrection, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and the future death, burial, and resurrection of all believers, and because of the instantaneous change of the believers who have not yet died upon the return of Christ, life has meaning. So go mean something to your life. Go create the moments that make a difference in the lives of others because your life has meaning. Life has meaning. So go mean to life. And then we will be the people who have great authenticity and credibility when we tell others from whom our meaning comes, it is him.